Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. There's a lot of moving parts from this that people are not understanding. Well, you have this gamma squeeze where people buy calls and then the dealer needs to hedge off the risk. And then that basically causes a reflexive dynamic of uh, forcing the stock up. And then from a pure Delta One perspective, I mean, you know, it's a short squeeze, right? These are distressed names. GME, uh, AMC, BB, all distressed plays where people are piling in hundreds of millions of dollars shorts on these things. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another one of our WTF episodes. My mom would be so proud. I just can't bring myself to use the actual F word. But uh, we like to spin these up with only a day's notice or so to our guests when there's something happening in the markets that really does make you think the world is insane, like crude oil going negative. And this week, it's a relatively obscure stock, GameStop, gaining thousands of percent and the mother of all short squeezes, gamma hedge fueled rallies. Uh, it's dominating traders' feeds all week, and we grabbed two of the best peeps we know to talk market maker dynamics and flow. Chris Sidio of Ambrose Group and Jim Carson of Agia Capital. Is it Cap, Jim? Capital. Agia right. Capital, sorry. So we brought these guys on to answer what the actual F is going on. So welcome, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, wanted to start with you. You mentioned about 150 points ago in GameStop that there was a uh, more coming to this short squeeze. Uh, tell us what you were, what you're seeing, and how it played out. Whether you played out as you thought it would, or way different. Yeah. So uh, you know, I know I had tweeted that when GameStop was at like 45 or whatnot. Um, more so because you, you see these dynamics happen much more frequently than people understand. And you know, this happens all the time in markets in so many different asset classes. You know, like just like crude oil, right? People underestimate the potential distribution of outcomes when we are at levels of extremity, right? So people say, oh, this now goes two sigma. There is no way this can go, you know, four sigma. So what does it do? It causes people to pile in, right? Like, for example, if a stock goes 200%, people pile in short and they say, oh, it has to go down. Reflexively, now it makes it go 600%, right? So this dynamic is a constant theme in markets. And I think, you know, with with the Citron, uh, with the Citron news coming out, it just had a bunch of more people piling short. And when I was seeing it, I was looking at some of the price action and I was saying to myself, well, this is looking like it's just grinding up. People are consistently buying it and everybody's short and more people are piling in short. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I could see which way, you know, this is going to go. Um, and what was the Citron news? They came out with a report basically saying this, this thing's toast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that yeah. was only like a week ago. Right, right. And now we're GameStop's trading at 350 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. But and then to me, 
Well, well, I'll just get in that note. So to me, like, and there's these guys who've made millions of dollars, right? But they're buying $50,000 worth of a out of the money call that has to move a hundred percent in a week, right? Like that's the insanity to me of like all props to those guys they've made, they've done well, but it's kind of an insane trade, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a real risky trade. Um, but again, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of moving parts from this that people are not understanding. Well, you have this gamma squeeze where people buy calls and then the dealer needs to hedge off the risk. And then that basically causes a reflexive dynamic of, uh, forcing the stock up. And then from a pure Delta one perspective, I mean, you know, it's a short squeeze, right? These are distressed names, GME, uh, AMC, BB, all distressed plays where people are piling in hundreds of millions of dollars shorts on these things. Right. Um, and when you have that and you have that dynamic of, well, here comes a gamma squeeze, here comes a single stock squeeze. And then, which is the most interesting part about this whole thing is the predatory type of institutional, um, uh, ability to take advantage of these things, it creates something that's that's really big like this. You know, people think yeah. that this is all Wall Street bets. It's not. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know I'm looking, uh, you know, at some of the flow coming in, especially on level two. We have access to some of the level three stuff as well, and you see it. It's like this is not only Wall Street bets. Prop guys know what they're doing. Certain other hedge fund guys know what they're doing. They're they're bringing things up to certain levels and. It's let's, causing this. Let's circle back to that and I'll bring it to you, Jim, and say, right, from a former market maker standpoint, like, what do you think this has looked like for them? Are they, you know, going home and popping a bottle of champagne or are they quaking in their boots? Yeah. Um, Chris used the word predatory. I, I'd be a little more cautious with it. I, the, the, the reality is, is Citadel, which is now over 25% of market making volume, um, you know, Yes, if they see weakness, right? They understand uh, dealer positioning, right? And how important that is for market direction. So that goes into their models. They'd be foolish not to. That's what the market's you know, driven by to a great extent. But they're really playing the flows, in my opinion. Um, they see these things coming there. They don't want to be run over. Uh, not only is it bad for business, it's, uh, it's more profitable to get ahead of it. And so, they see the flows coming, they're consistent, they're reliable, they're predictable. And so they're jumping in front of them and front running them and buying it and then selling it as, as it gets bought. And this creates a cascade, right? Um, so hold on, you're talking about them as a market maker or as a hedge fund? As a, Both, right, as yeah. a market maker. But the reality is as a market maker, you're going to, to position yourself for incoming flows. Um, if you have consistent buying of, of vol day after day, I'll tell you in 2008, 2009, you didn't come in short vol. You made sure you were long vol every day because you knew each day you'd come in and there'd be some crazy bid to vol somewhere that you'd want to sell. And the second you sold it, you'd get long again, right? Right. So the simplistic example is- to get, a, to get ahead of the coming flow. You have to because you have to be absorbing that leverage, right? Um, you know, absorbing that flow. And so, you know, that's, you know, it, it, that, you can say as a market maker hedge fund, it's it's a very gray line, right? This was, it's kind of like when bank, banks used to market make and they had to kind of divest themselves of that, you know, um, or they could market make it, or they couldn't, they couldn't have the, the positions. They still end up having the positions because they were market making. Um, so yeah, in my opinion, you know, there is some of this, hey, people see blood in the streets, they know where the pain points are and they push on it. Um, but the line of whether that's predatory or really just, investing nowadays. Um, you know, we talked about dealer positioning and how critical it is. 
this world is not a world based on fundamentals at these liquidity levels. We're, we're given where, we're, um, you know, how available money is and, and, and how easy it is for people to invest. It's about, um, you know, it's about where the flows are going. Uh, companies aren't going bankrupt because there's infinite liquidity. So at the end of the day, who's buying, who's selling? If people are more buyers than sellers, you better be uh, buying that name. It's not a function of fundamentals. Like Chris mentioned, if you know, you're somebody out there playing the fundamental games, it actually ends up being a disadvantage to you because you're betting on something that has nothing to do with the reality of where these prices are going. And ultimately you end up getting short and, and being somebody who um, you know, is playing the wrong game. Right, you know, so, sorry, sorry. Sorry, real quick, just can you explain the difference between a dealer and a market maker, if there is one, or you're just using those interchangeably? Dealer is a broad term for uh, anybody who takes it for the street. So anybody who's taken the other side of customer flow. So it could be market makers, it could be banks, could be other entities, warehousing, uh, risk, um, you know, but it's, it's essentially where the customer flow gets warehoused. Right. So different than the pure market maker who's just making a market on that option and might have to gamma hedge. So the dealer may have inventory they're trying to offload or something like that. Right. The dealers generally hedge, right? So because they're taking and warehousing risk and trying to manage it, you know, uh, factor neutral. Right. Now, it's an interesting point that you're making because the simplistic example that we put out on our blog and a lot of nice work out there is right of, hey, retail's buying these calls. It's a 20 delta. The dealer has to buy, you know, 20 deltas to hedge themselves out, gets closer to the strike. Now they have to buy 80. Now they're 90. Now they're 100. But you're saying it's even more complex than that because they know that's coming. So they might have to pre-position themselves and uh, they're not waiting for the call option to come in. They're actually going to buy those deltas before it comes yeah, in. This, yes, this isn't a world where you blindly just say, make a market and then take it and you hedge it and move on. It's yeah. You have a factor model, you're, you're feeding, you're looking at the whole market, right? And you're uh, not just hedging it with underlying delta, you're doing it on a correlation basis, on a dispersion basis. The best right. market makers have you know, real-time models with every single factor flowing in um, you know, and every factor on that factor, ball factors, skew, uh, you know, ptosis, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, uh, you know, as one's moving and you're getting too much inventory in that way, you have to move your model, right? To, to, to take back aggressively what you're getting short, which means ultimately you end up being a, the most aggressive buyer out there uh, and pushing along with it because you don't want to be the one caught short. Um, so there is that process. And obviously the more reliable the flow is, the more you know it's coming. Uh, more predictable it is the more aggressive you're going to be to make sure that you kind of get taken out of it um and so yeah you know citadel's making a lot of money on this not just because the market making because i'm sure they're they're going with the flow but that's what they do it's it's not predatory it's it's really what trading is nowadays um, if you don't watch the flow if you don't know where things are going it's a liquidity driven world it's not a uh, it's not a world where you know this is cheap and that's expensive uh, based on fundamentals. It just doesn't, things don't move yeah. up. And Chris, I cut you off. Sorry, what were you saying before? Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with Jim. So I want to stand on this point that I think that what these guys are doing as traders are, is not predatory, right? But most people will look at it as it's a predatory action, right? I was on a prop desk. I know what it was like to trade prop, right? Guys have certain things that they look at on a day-to-day -day base where they say, hmm, where are people positioned at, right? And they have certain ways to understand the way how flow is coming in, right? And levels where everybody else is looking at. So when I say a predatory way, right? 
institutional guys know what they're doing when they're buying at certain levels and selling at certain levels. They're moving right the actual underlying for a particular reason. And this is not just prop, right? So I don't want to single out all the prop guys. These are hedge fund guys as well. I have guys who are also buy side Delta One traders, and I know they know what they're doing in these things, right? And, and what I was saying before is that the actual flow is showing me, right? The flow that we are seeing and we are noticing, it's very obvious to see. This is not Wall Street bets, right? Like I was looking at the price action on BB, right? You know, we're tracking flow there. We're seeing level two. Some of the prints are coming through a level three. And it's very clear that, you know, once this thing breaks through a specific level, it starts skipping up, you know, a buck every 30 seconds. The reason for it, right, is because guys knew if they ticked it up to that level, it's going to move a specific way. Um, and then also, you know, we track intraday correlations. So, you know, all three of these names, BB, AMC, Jimmy, non-correlated. But if you look at some of the intraday correlations, they trade in line. At 5 a.m. this morning, I was looking at how some of these things were moving, right? GME would drop down a little bit. Then you would see the best bid on AMC drop, the best bid on BB drop. This is not a Wall Street bet guy that's in front of his screen saying, oh, yeah, Jimmy's down. I'm going to, you know, offer, uh, I'm going to bid a little lower, right? This is an algo that's coming from one of the guys that's trading it the same way that I was explaining. So I agree with Jim when he says, you know, it's not predatory. Maybe I use that term in the wrong way. But when I say it, I mean, Guys know what they're doing, right? This is not just those Wall Street bet kids that are playing this. There are other smart investors, smart traders who also understand these this location. Right. right, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're, they're alpha predators. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is it is predation in the sense that you know the markets are a, a series of you know the hunted and you know the hunter and the hunted. Um, so I agree with that. I just uh, I think I was more reacting to. No, no, I, I completely get it. I completely because because, you know, especially right now when you have this thing going on with everybody saying, well, you know, it, it, is it wrong that some of these Wall Street bet guys, you know, uh, are they are they partaking in price manipulation? I don't think so. I don't. I really don't. I, this is a market. Right. If Jim, if I wanted to buy Apple from you at a thousand dollars, who's to say that that's the wrong price? Right. Who? What, what's the reason as to that's the wrong price? Yeah, no, I, th I think there's, you know, that's, this is a whole nother debate. I don't know if we want to get down this. This is a, a series of grades, right? Once you get into, to this world and, I, and I'm not going to die on either side of that, that hill. Um, you know, the reality is there is a line. I think we can all agree there is a line where at some point there is coordinated action, right? And, and it's, uh, you know, if you had, if you had a bunch of uh, big hedge funds teaming up together to kind of take down another fund, right? Knowing their positions, um, that would be, illegal, that would be predatory, right? Um, and so right, there's a lot, you know, yes, this is how markets work. At what point is it, uh, you know, explicit and kind of the intent is to, um, you know, to team up and, and to do something that is not free market. Right. Uh, I, do you think we'll get anyone, any senators who will go fight for Wall Street on, uh, you know, against the retail guys? Right. I mean, this is the thing. This is the reason I don't think the SEC is going to come out and say anything soon um, is because they're, you know, if, you know, unless they do some blanket statement across, um, you know, hedge funds, everything, um, because there is this sentiment that, hey, nothing's been done about this for years when the big boys do it. You know, why, why are they saying something now that retail is doing? Yeah. I think that it'll feed into this whole inequality narrative and, and kind of be a mess.
there was an interesting uh, Dave Nadig. I don't know how to say his name. N A D I G um, had a great post of like, this isn't about the gamut. It's not about all that. It's uh, social media and the algorithms they're using to serve up what you click on most. So it's almost like the gamma trade inside the social media, right? Of the more people click on GameStop, the more content about GameStop they're going to get. And it just creates all of a sudden a herd mentality just based on that social algorithm of, you know, on TikTok, on Reddit, on all that, it gets voted up and you're going to get more of that content and it's going to drive more people to buy the calls and it's going to drive the price. So there's a little bit, it's different this time, it's his argument because of this social algorithm piece. So you guys got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, um, I think that's part of it. I don't think that's, that's my, my personal opinion is it's, that's not the core uh, going on. I think this was happening something very similar but without derivatives, right? Uh, in, in 2000, I mean, you had chat boards and, and people you know, yeah. they were pushing, you know, they were squeezing shorts and- One so spanded rooms, right? Yeah, so like, I think the leverage is different. I think that's the big difference. The amount, the adoption and ease of trading options, call options in particular, and, and the gamma and, and leverage that's embedded in that. Uh, you know, you've basically taken, uh, you know, retail and given them a 10x multiplier. Um, and, and so that's incredibly powerful, be, uh, not just because of the leverage, but because of the profitability that comes to that. And then the added leverage that gets added, it's, a, it's an exponential function, right? So I think that's what's really different. They, they're a lot more powerful this time because of they have, they have a cool new weapon. Um, yeah, and I think but, Ben Eifert had a nice graphic explaining that of like $1,500 premium in Amazon in his example resulted in a, a market maker, a dealer buying 230,000 worth of stock, you know, yeah, as, yeah. as a- At the approach. end of the day there guys, you know, you've seen the posts, uh, you know, 10K in and now they're writing a $20 million check. I mean, uh, <laughs> and, they're, and they're doing that that quickly because of leverage and that 20 million is now leveraged again, right? And there's nothing that says I can't become 200 million. Um, yeah. It's just, that's the crazy game of leverage. And, and uh, you know, but at, at the core of it, I think that the thing, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of is, is what Chris, you know, said at the very beginning that this is about positioning, right? There are guys out there with that, that it became public what their positioning was. Um, and that positioning is uh, in these markets, which is all liquidity based, is ultimately um, something that that will will lead markets to go there. I mean, this is I've, I've talked about it as I call it Gary or whatever, right? The dealer positioning is ultimately what is driving the supply and demand dynamics, and particular particularly in derivatives, which has this embedded leverage in it, and really has gotten so big that it's it's uh, kind of dominating flows. But even in this case, it wasn't necessarily the dealer positioning, right? But the Melvin Capital, the short sellers, like you don't know all the flow trading you guys do. You don't know when that short seller has to puke out, right? Like that's the missing piece in terms of- well, You could see that though, you know, like you could, you know when the price action starts to react a certain way when somebody's just basically puking it all out, right? Like levels start to skip tremendously high, right? The market winds up at a certain point. Uh, you could spot that. I, I think if you're, if you're an experienced flow trader and you know, you know what to look for, you know when something is abnormal uh, at that price level uh, and with that price action. Um, but it's, but it's, in real time after the fact, right? You can't see it like flow. You can kind of tell before the fact or have a guess of where the levels are, where the where the hedging needs to take place. Yeah, well, while it's taking place, you know, something's abnormal. You may not know directly, oh, that's, you know, Melvin Capital or, or, or whatever, but you know, something abnormal is taking place. This could be, you know, a specific fund or, you know, somebody's coming through a specific route 
consistently, right? They're 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 coming through that route on with the same type of lot, maybe like a thousand lot, two thousand lot, you know, hits the route on VWAP, you know, every time it goes to VWAP. So you, you pick up on things like that and you know, okay, that's a big order there. Somebody's, you know, somebody's consistently bidding or offering at this level. So it's little things like that. You know when when it's abnormal. But it's interesting too because you know everybody focuses on well everybody's talking about this Melvin Capital thing. These are all distressed names. You know how many other funds are underwater? Everybody's just been piling in short on this. Like I didn't yeah, take another one that came out just before we got on. Uh, I'll, I'll pull up the name, but yeah, yeah, like it can't be just them, right? Right. No, it's not just them. You know, I, I honestly feel bad for the guy because you know he's being singled out on this whole thing, and it's like you're gonna start hearing more names pop up. I even tweeted about this last night. You know, like just AMC alone, you're gonna see AMC squeeze today, and like I mean, anybody could have told you it was gonna squeeze because. Again, if you have a bunch of funds that are short distressed names and then they just gap up 100, 200 percent, you have to, like, of course, you're going to get, you know, forced liquidation. I think this is an important point. And, and, and you know, I think you know, we're, we're recording this right after that big drop today. Right. Um, that's completely tied to what's going on as much as people. Don't, um, I mean, if you've been watching the action, you understand what's happening. Hedge funds are are having to liquidate their. Um, their long side of the pear trade. And a lot of these guys have been short all of this, um, all of this, uh, you know, junk, right? And they've been long stuff that they believed that had, uh, you know, was a good, good hedge against it. And, and, and again, in a world that's all liquidity driven has nothing to do with fundamentals. Now all those longs have to get liquidated to make room on the sheets for the liquidation of the shorts. And those are, we're basically saying margin calls or just to keep their risk in balance or both? Yeah. First margin calls, right? But then like you can't continue to stay long that stuff if you're getting killed on the other side. Plus if you get redemptions, right? Somebody comes in and says, hey, you're down 30%. I want my $5 billion back, right? Uh, you got to liquidate both sides of the book. Um, it's whether it's yeah. a margin call, redemption, whatever it is, that, that long's got to go too. And so, you know, what you're seeing today is, is a result of serious pain on, on a lot of these names. Um, and, and it's going to, you know, until this is resolved, I think you'll see a little bit more of it. No, then, you're 100% right. That, sorry to cut you off, Jeff. That, that is 100% right. That is exactly why we noticed a relative weakness in the market today as well. And you notice people are going to do this on the large, thick names, right? You're not going to do this on a, a small cap name or a mid cap name, right? If you're exiting a position, you're going to want to do it on a name like, Apple or, you know, Facebook or, or Tesla, you will have relative weakness in the larger names because, you know, you could enter and exit at, you know, better or, or, or worse prices that won't be uh, much more detrimental than, you know, if you were in like a small cap type of name. Right. And even, right. Let's just talk, we're talking uh, GameStop is mall based video game sales, right? It, basically the most antiquated business you could come up with right now, right? Like it's all subscription-based and goes online. Uh, AMC, movie theaters, who's going to movie theaters right now? And what BB is, is BlackBerry? Yeah. Right, like who do you know with a BlackBerry, right? So like fundamentally, like you're saying, like these are the three stocks you would least want to own in the in the universe. Um, and they're up hundreds of percent. And if I'm a dispersion trader or a pairs trader, right? I'm going to be long Apple and Tesla and short these names that have no future, right? So that's, that's also the key of like the, that's gone way out of whack. Yeah. I mean, look, there's been a lot of talk about factors and what's wrong. Why is quantitative trading not working? Whatever it's the reality is they're playing the wrong game. So what's deemed quantitative trading now is, is 
based on fundamental factors on, on issues that have nothing to, to do with supply and demand, really. And if anything, they're contra, you know, they're, they're counter-correlated to it because people are playing that game and it's not the game. So they're getting taken out on it. And, and so, you know. So why, did, why aren't, or we're probably going to hear some stories about some smart hedge funds that were piling into this alongside the retail? Yeah, like, I mean, yes, sir, go ahead. My two things are like, one, AI-driven funds aren't there yet, right? Because if you have the smart AI, it's identified this six months ago and is already pu- put into the trade. So that's neither here nor there. And two, like where are the smart macro traders that are saying, hey, we need to be in these trades. Um, this is what's going on. Or is it yeah. worth it? Or maybe they're like, no, even even though this has happened, it's such an outlier. It's not worth chasing that kind of outlier. You know, it's going to happen once every 30 years or something. No, yeah, I, there just aren't enough. There aren't enough funds out there that that have completely switched to the um, fundamentals. Don't matter. It's all about who's buying and who's selling. I mean, a lot of guys do that, but that you know, there's so much money out there playing the long short value game, right? Um, and it's just those guys are they're at a huge disadvantage, and there's a lot of money that's going to continue to you know, unless they start looking at where the supply and demand is, um, that's going to keep preying on it. You this is exactly. Trade. Sorry to cut you off, Jeff. Uh, I'm cutting you Go off ahead, today, man. man. I apologize. <laughs> no, this, this, Jim, you hit on that perfectly. You know, I, I, I'm so outspoken on social media about these things, and also in you know some of the other interviews that I've done. But this is why I don't believe fully quantitative models, especially in the vol space, work. You need some sort of discretionary overlay because there are times like this where the model is going to say, "Okay, there is a dislocation and upside skew." Uh, you know, between these two names, right? Now you're short a calendar and you're getting blown out the water, right? Like if you were short a call on GME, right? Like a week ago, it doesn't matter what strike you were short. It doesn't matter what structure you were short. It does not matter. You are blown out. Even if you were short one lot, right? You were, I mean, the thing went from like, what was it like 15 or something to $350. It does not matter, right? So you need that discretionary overlay. You need to be able to realize what is creating this dislocation from a supply and demand dynamic, spot that, assess it, and then make a trade. If you just have a purely quantitative model in the vol world, right? The model, especially if you're math driven, like, you know, we are, you know, we take pride in, in, in that. But on the same accord, we use our discretion as traders to say, hold on now, what is making this dislocation? And if it's supply and demand driven, do we want to get run over? No. I, have a, I agree 100% with what you're saying, but I have a sem- semantic difference that I want you know, a distinction I want to make. Um, I think you need to, you know, people who, who are quantitative traders need to remodel their distributions based on supply, which is basically what you're saying, right? Um, you know, I, I don't sit here and discretionarily trade as much. I mean, it's harder on it when you're dealing with idiosyncratic names. So to an extent, like it's very hard to model that, but you know, you know, what I, what I try and do is really model that distribution and put it into my quantitative framework. So right. I can continue to be very quantitative right. in my approach. But I agree, yeah. you have to model that underlying distribution. It is not a normal distribution. It's not a set, uh, you know, distribution uh, that you're used to. It, it's whatever the supply and demand dynamics dictate that, that, that it is. Right. But to, and to me, it's more like, right, like high frequency trading is essentially supply dynamics on a super short time frame, right? Right. Like they're looking at the order book and that's where they're getting all their information and they're trading that flow. Right. So we're just talking the same flow, but over days and weeks and months. 
Um, so it, to me, it's like that should lend itself perfectly to a quantitative approach of modeling that flow, you know, ignoring what you're saying, Chris, of if I model every time a thing goes three standard deviations out, if I sell the vol 97.6% of the time I make money and life's good, right? That ignores that you're going to blow out on that 2.4% of the time, right? So I get that sort of the quant model is not going to work because you're going to discount where the outliers, how frequently they happen. But it seems to me like perfectly set up for a quant model to say, I'm going to plug in all this, this fundamental flow info and get a, a model based on that info, right? If Netflix can tell me what movie I want to watch next, someone can surely model that flow. Yeah, I think he's talking more about, you know, volatility, quantitative volatility models, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, especially with trading. With embedded assumptions, right? And I, I think, I think to, to his point, I completely agree with him. It's like those embedded assumptions, if you, you know, they'll kill you. Um, you got you to, gotta, you know, have other quantitative models, like you're saying, Jeff, that, that help, help you better model what, what actually is reality in real time. So how did, how does this all end? Jeff, you first. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like to me, right. It's like the, uh, in, uh, the hunt for red October, one of my favorite books slash movies where they like do the, uh, they turn back into the missile and it breaks up before it has time to arm. Right. And he's like, Oh, that's it. That's all we got to do. He's like, no, he's changing the settings on his, on his torpedo right now. So like, it seems to me like, Oh, this is it. You just got to look at the most, shorted names and, and buy way out of the money calls so, Piece of cake. but for sure someone's readjusting the torpedoes right now yeah so this is um we talked about this off air before we got started here but um i think you have to step back for a second and ask yourself okay what's actually going on here why is this happening now and um you know the reality is it's because of people are a at home b um there's massive fiscal um, you know, we've had now three fiscal stimulus um, flow into, um, and it hasn't just gone to the bottom, right? If it just went to the very, very bottom, you'd have just price inflation because those people aren't really investing. But this is going to lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class. A lot of this PPP money went to doctors, lawyers, dentists, right? Um, you know, small business owners. And those people are at home. Um, you know, markets are liquid. There are opportunities to make money and people are taking it. And, um, and so that fiscal wave uh, has, has as, as was, would be expected is leading to inflation, but not just price inflation, right? It's leading to asset inflation, but not the old kind that you'd expect with institutions and corporations as much as retail, you know, people at, at home, you know, leveraging their, their brokerage accounts. And you pair that with, you know, Robin Hoods of the world and all the embedded leverage now that we talked about. Um, as well as better understanding, you know, social media, you know, we talk about on Twitter, Chris and I are out there educating people all the time. People get a better understanding of, of how these things work and, and what they can take advantage of. And, um, right. Maybe you, know, you so, guys should take all the credit of like, Hey, you shouldn't just be out there dumbly this, this is Chris's fault, ball, like, <laughs> no, this, be on the long Jeff, ball side. Jeb has the big following. This is all you, man. <laughs> no, but, uh, look, it's, um, this makes sense. So how does it end? So if that's what's happening, how does it end? It ends with a, you know, people going back outside and spending as opposed to sitting in front of their terminals trading all the time. It ends with, um, you know, retail having to pay some taxes on this potentially in March and April. Um, you know, it, it, it ends with 
uh, anything that's going to limit the flow of capital from the retail that's throwing um, money hand over fist into it. Um, either that or you know, a market correction where these guys get washed up. Um, until that happens, expect this to get bigger, it, worse, crazier. If um, I'm the like, possible I'm, thing is if the SEC or somebody comes in and, and makes some type of a directive that, that also uh, stymies it. But I, I think you know, even that, like, there's a lot of people with a lot of money sitting at home uh, now you know, playing markets. And, and, and they're going to keep trying to find ways to make money, um, you know, and uh, unless that, you know, they're not sitting at home, they don't have that fiscal money flowing into their pockets. That's, you're going to keep seeing this type of action. Um, Scott Galloway, I'd like to follow him. He, he was like, it's all about sex. These people are locked in their houses. They're not having enough sex. They've got all this extra money. They're, they're replacing sex with gambling on college. There might be something to that. Do you know, like I, everybody expected there to be a, a baby boom. It's actually the yeah. opposite. Yeah, it's that. the call option boom, right? Yeah, Not the baby boom. You're getting too much of each other. I don't want to see you anymore. <laughs> but all, And also you said they, they all, there's a market correction, they blow out, but they might say, I'm using they very loosely of this whole group, like, no, we're buying options, right? How are we going to blow out? Like we have to lose many, many, many times in a row. I'd counter to that of like, well, when you bought your whole net worth, 50,000 worth on, you know, 200% out of the money weekly calls, like if you do that 10 times, you're probably not going to. And this is gambling at the end of the day. Uh, yeah. Tell, you, know, yeah. you can, you can take half of it. I, I'll put it in your pocket. I'm never going to spend this again. But you know, the question is, are these guys going to pull that money out of their pocket when the market's down? I'd, I'd wait for you. Right. So it's less a correction, right? Than just it. how many times can you do it before it, it doesn't work? This is what makes it super interesting too, right? Is because these guys are winning on all these trades. So the buying power is exponentially increasing as we go along too, right? They're not losing, like they're winning. They could take that money and now, you know, theoretically just run it back. And that's what it, that's what's been happening, right? We've had this amazing reflexive dynamic of not only from the hedging standpoint, the short interest, not only that, but when you're making money and, you know, you have not been burned, you're just going to go with the crazy, you know, far out the money call or, you know, just hold the position. And, and these guys are holding too. You know, you look at the way how yeah, some of these things are insane. trading. They, they, it does like AMC offered twice in the last three days, two big offerings did not budget, right. Maybe dropped it like, you know, a few percent right back up. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, the well, is up like 20 million on the April calls for GameStop. Nope, holding. I'm like, what? <laughs> a lot could happen before April. Look what happened in one week and you want to hold it three more months. Right, this right. Is, you see, like looking at fundamentals is a disadvantage, right? If you're in any way looking at fundamentals, like you would have sold 250, 300% ago, right? But, um, you know, and that's the other thing. These guys that are, you know, like hedge funds that are short, like you can lose more than hundred percent if you're short. You can lose 200, 300, 400, 500 percent. Um, and that's the problem with, you know, being on the short side in this type of a world, especially not on any uh, flow analysis on fundamental. Like, I don't know. Does anyone know how that works on, well, can you sell options on Robinhood naked? I don't even know. Um, we'll I, believe you, I, I believe I have a friend that was doing that uh, previously, not now. And I think he was able to, I don't know if they changed this, but this was like five months ago. He was selling naked on. Robert. Yeah. My, my two questions are one, can you sell? And then in their platform, does it like try and auto 
liquidate you, right? Like, can you go? Oh, that I know. That I know it does. It definitely does auto liquidate you uh, because it happened to him a few times, very on, on very bad positions. Uh, yeah. He was out faster uh, just because they're really tight with their, with their risk. Cause I think they know that their investor base is very <laughs> risk focused. Right. But uh, that's another argument too, for the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Of like the mm-hmm. auto liquidation is just going to add more buying power, which adds more, more upside. So let's talk these big, Jim, you had the comment of like, maybe this game's over because these guys are coordinating of uh, Citadel and point 72 coming in and, and buying a stake in uh, Melvin. Um, yes. Yeah. So I thought, um, you know, when, when the big boys come in, I, my initial thought was that these guys probably passed this by the SEC before they did it. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, that would make sense that, you know, there's, if Melvin's having stress that, you know, they, they'd want that to be stabilized. Um, I also, my also general thought was that they'd be willing to, uh, you know, not coordinate, but, but, uh, you know, hold these values down. That having been said, I think, um, you know, it, I've, I've done a bit of thinking since I genuinely, and, and the SEC, I, I think will have a major problem coming out vocally and doing anything um, at least too harsh, given the, uh, like you guys have mentioned, kind of the, the populist rhetoric around, um, around this. This has gotten all tied into the inequality narrative, right? Uh, at this point, um, I think, uh, you know, at some point, if it gets bad enough, they'll have to do something, but I, I could see it going on a bit longer um, without any SEC kind of. Right. Well, and it's upside, right? If it was flipped, I feel like everyone would be all over it, right? Yeah, exactly. Very important point here too. I made this point on Twitter at one point. Uh, and I think if at any point, and I don't see this necessarily happening anytime soon, but if this turned, right? And people started realizing you can buy puts and, and the market's getting really weak and we're going to flip this and start you know, buying puts and use the same leverage. That's incredibly more powerful than what you're seeing now. It's incredibly more dangerous because the street is short puts, right? At least here, like, you know, the citadels of the world are getting plenty of call flow in the indices and other places. It's a much more balanced trade to go buy calls. The market also has, as a whole, the market has more limited upside potential just based on their, their embedded longs in the world that at some price will sell. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it's important to kind of at least give lip service to the fact that, you know, if this, this retail wave could be very, very dangerous if it turns to the downside at any point. And there's nothing that says that it can't or won't happen. Um, you know, especially if they're like disenfranchised power. millennials who want to blow up the system, quote unquote, right? Or like I mean, they're celebrating in the streets because a hedge fund. And the market gets really weak and they start saying, okay, this looks like this could really go the other way for, you know, may not be as appealing because it's not infinite, right? But you could see situations where this, all of a sudden this adds tremendous, I mean, retail's 25% of the flow now. It used to be five, two years ago. You know, 25% of the flow all of a sudden turning and buying derivatives on the downside when it's when, when the street's actually already short. I mean, that could be a structurally really dangerous problem. And I know that may sound crazy, but it's, it's a real thing that needs to be looked at and thought about. Um, and so, I mean, the SEC has lot, at least got to think about that Right? If they don't say anything now, are they going to be doing this when the market's down or something? You know, this is happening. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of um, underlying questions and things to think about here. You know, this is a, a brave new world with with a, 
a new player that, you know, it's a little bit crazy, right? They'll do anything. And they're 20, 25% of the market. And that needs to be understood, probably better regulated. Anyway, right. I, I kind of digressed a bit, but you know, how do, you know, I, the big boys are, are definitely going to try and help stabilize things. I do think Ken is like, I think there are two different situations personally. I don't know for a fact, but I think Stevie's probably more on the side of Melvin at this point. Um, I think uh, I think Citadel took this as a hedge to their core book and knew that they were getting structural edge in a business that they would have both sides of the trade. Um, and that's what a lot of people just, it feels wrong, right? That Citadel can be the hedge fund, the market maker, the, right? They've got like all these, all these different somewhat conflicting positions. Yeah. It's not wrong and it's just smart. Right, right. They're not really. It's just like they are the system now. They are the infrastructure. You know, somebody's got to be. And, and, and you know, he, he's bigger, faster, better than everybody else on the street. So. And but how does that end? Like, it, it feels like at some point that'd be like they're too big, right? They're they're too big and they're too important to the system to be left to their own devices. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to have to prove that. Or yeah, exactly. That's you know, that's thing. Like, is it monopolistic? I guess is your question. I don't. I mean, I don't think yet. Maybe they're 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 really good. Yeah, but maybe not monopolistic, but just too big to fail. Oh, they're definitely that. But I, I think yeah. they're also probably too good to fail. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, we got to be careful talking about them here in Chicago. They're they're gonna come, put a note on our door of like, hey, stop stop talking about it. <laughs> Um, so how does this tie into the overall market, Chris, from what you're saying with like your dispersion trades and right, this is the mother of all dispersions. I wouldn't say it's, I mean, there is a sense of dispersion going on. I wouldn't say it's like the mother of all dispersion. It's not your regular vanilla type of dispersion. Uh, but I think it's going to impact flows on a, on a big level. Um, just like, what Jim and I were talking about today, right? Relative weakness in the market because of forced liquidation. Apple had nothing to do with this, right? Like the large cap names, SPX had nothing to do with this, but they're going to be impacted because those large funds needed to liquidate, right? So they're going to sell off the large names to make sure that they have uh, their capital. I have no clue as to how this is going to finally end. I do believe that when it ends, it's going to be a big bang one way or the other. This isn't something that's just going to go away into the sunset. And it's like, oh, we don't hear about them anymore. Remember those guys? Like, it's going to be something where there's going to be some sort of uh, regulatory intervention, which I, the more I think about it, I just can't see that happening because, again, you know, imagine trying, imagine the SEC trying to bring these Wall Street bet guys to court. It's you know, billionaire hedge fund managers versus the little guy. That is a horrible, that's that's just a horrible image that, you know, they're going to be portrayed to the media. Um, but, you know, as to what Jem was saying, I do see the other side of it where if the market starts to turn, I think some of these people will start understanding, oh, wait, we could buy puts, right? Now everybody's buying puts when the market is down 20%. Okay, so then what is that going to do? It's going to cause it to be down 50%. Right. And then it's it's tremendously reflexive, um, you know, from a regulatory standpoint. The SEC has done a lot that has shifted markets. And, you know, I, I spoke about this in another um, uh, another interview. But since the Dodd-Frank Act, 
right? Dealers can't inventory that same amount of risk that they once were able to, right? So it causes this type of dealer gamma hedging, right? Back in the day, if you had, you know, 100 million worth of Apple and this position is going against you, you could say, hey, I'll take more Apple, right? Like pre-2008, if you were the trader on the desk at a large bank, you ran the show. Now, you can't do that. Apple goes against you 10%, you're getting a, you know, tap on the shoulder from compliance to say, hey, what's going on with that position? You now need to hedge it, right? So you create the reflexive dynamic. And that was from the regulatory standpoint, changing the market, right? So what are they going to do now from a regulatory standpoint that says, okay, well, now, you know, dealer hedging impacts the direct flow of the market. Now we need to stop that. So then are you going to allow banks to take massive amount of risk that they did pre-Dodd-Frank? You know, like, I, I don't yeah. see w- what direction that this could potentially go, Um but I just don't think that it's going to end in a, you know, just easy out the door fashion. It's going to be a, a big ending. The law of unintended consequences rears its head again. I think I want to say one thing to, to Chris's point. I think this is interesting. I, I think Dodd-Frank had, has clearly played a role and, and you know, the, the regulatory landscape has made it. So there's a bit less liquidity on one side. That said, I don't think this is a, supply side issue in the sense that, you know, there aren't enough dealers or enough people who are willing to take the other side. There's a little bit of that. I think it's a much more of a a demand side issue. I think um, ball products have grown exponentially. The interest in understanding in them has grown exponentially. And I think it will continue to do so um, for several major reasons. One, we're becoming a much more quantitatively driven investing world. Uh, everything is factor analysis or, you know, some quantitative algo model. And, and that, that has itself grown exponentially. And options and derivatives in general are the perfect tool within that framework because they allow you access to the complete distribution of outcomes. A stock is a very poor, you know, investment vehicle in the sense that, you know, it's a linear outcome of, of a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different information. In a world where you can glean information in real time and, and try and turn that into profit, you really want to be able to say, okay, this limits the, the chances of a 20% downside in X stock. I want to go take advantage of that information, right? Not just go, okay, I'm going to go buy the stock or sell the stock. So I think this general understanding has, has, has um, you know, and the flexibility and power of derivatives has, has entered the, the broad market. And, and it, it's kind of, I've said this to Twitter before, but it's kind of flipped the script where stocks now, although they're still the, the primary investment vehicle, I think the, you know there's a long-term trend towards a much more flexible, you know, full distribution of, of potential outcomes, which lies within the derivatives that, that these things are priced, um, you know, that, that, that are priced on top of this. You know, in a sense, the derivatives themselves have become the underlying. And can that continue? And I think that demand flow, you know, this market is not prepared for. I think that's the problem. You have a structural flow towards something that is way incredibly powerful, much better product, but the world hasn't yet adapted to understanding how to manage and the regulatory framework hasn't been built to uh, provide the liquidity for it. So I think that's actually at the core of what's going on. I think a crisis of sorts around this will eventually lead to better regulation and better, you know, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll allow it to grow over time. But right now it's a problem. And, and you know the SEC is afraid to come out and say something about this, but it's because they don't have the framework or the tool or the, the expertise probably in house to fully come up with a, you know, a cogent uh, 
framework to, to deal with what's secularly changing in this world. And I'm on a little bit of a tangent there, but I think that's actually what's what's really driving. Um, yeah, no, and I like that. But theoretically, can the tail wag the dog, right? Like at some point you get to a point, say there's no actual stock volume and it's all the options, which is you know never going to happen. But just in that world, how, how can you price the index? Right, it's the index just have to price call parity at expiration. You have uh, embedded it within the options chain. You have the underlying. The underlying is one of the is a set of two derivatives. Long call, short put, the same underlying is is the stock value. Um, you don't need a separate stock to to price the derivative. You can price it off of its own value. That's, right, but that's what I'm saying. Like it, it's a framework that people are really uncomfortable with in terms of thinking about it, but. There's nothing that says you need to have stock. That's just how things came about. That's, that was the natural cause and origin of, of valuation because it was the idea of equity, right, uh, in a business. But in terms of a you know financial market modeling uh, different potential distribution probabilistic realities of an asset, um, it's a it's a very poor financial asset. And ultimately, you know, the derivatives that have been developed to sit on top of that are much better. Real picture of reality. Right. Uh, it's almost like let's just create, uh, we'll just have some random distribution on the computer and, and you can put derivatives on top of that and trade those derivatives. Like you, you know, you disconnect from that and it's, it's just like you're saying, it blows your mind of like, wait, how do you, what do you mean we can trade options without the underlying stuff? But this is what's happening in the fundamental world, right? You have the ability to take advantage of all these little different things and, and it's a much more flexible, much more intelligent kind of framework. And derivatives allow you the flexibility and, and, and to, to take advantage of all those different pieces and to plug directly into the model. So it's it's an incredibly powerful thing. And, and, and for, for good reason, it's growing in popularity and understanding. And um, But again, the system is not. I and think I think it. we mentioned at the top of like crude oil going negative, that is kind of a leftover of the old analog world and having to settle physical commodities, right? So like it does create problems if you have the underlying has to be settled with the options. Like if that's disconnected, you get a more pure actual price in that case, right? Crude is a perfect example of that. Yeah, we're only talking about the listed option space. We didn't even get into the exotics, right? And the growth of structured <laughs> products over the last year and a half, right? So that that in itself is a massive beast that is consistently growing in a low rate environment, right? That is the theme. It's that everybody is trying to hunt for yield, right? As rates remain low and then the growth of exotic products have skyrocketed tremendously, and now we add the secondary layer of this on, right? And don't forget- Give an example of a real quick of an exotic product. Oh, you could just go with like a regular like auto call, but, or, or let's just say like, you know, a double levered, uh, double levered uh, barrier note. So it's like basically the, the bank is long a way out the money put on like three-year tenor, five-year tenor. So you could have like a worst of note, which is like three names. So like, let's say Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and what it does, the worst of note tracks uh, the worst performer. Uh, so if it gets down to, let's say, 25% is the, you know, the, the barrier, so 70, 75% barrier. If one of those stocks is down 25%, the note gets knocked in, right? So what I'm trying to say is that there are so many other avenues tied to this. And but this is real quick, they're selling those to retail. Like exactly. Saying, yep. You know. Yep. Right. They're selling that to retail. Right. So synthetically, retail is short a put. Right. That's that's basically the structure of, of these things. And they're receiving some sort of a yield. Uh, but with a fixed loss. But yeah, short a put yeah. with a fixed loss. 
Yeah. So, so this is uh, this is the, the the thing I'm trying to say is that as people are reaching for more yield, they're partaking in more of these structured products that adds another overlay because these exotic traders need to hedge off their book, right? So you have another dynamic of people now having to force liquidate, but this is not from like a you know a retail standpoint. This is a massive institutional standpoint. Um, so you know you have the listed option stuff, and now you have the exotic stuff. And you could see how this could be a very dangerous game. And I want to circle back to that of like, how do you know where those flows are when it's kind of off book, right? Oh, man. Well, we're, we, <laughs> I don't want to talk too much. <laughs> don't give away the secret sauce. But yeah. right, if, if you're a pure flow trader, that seems like a, an issue. But you guys are saying not necessarily. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's hard for, to, to, to have a, a good look from a flow level. You can't get that real time. Um, you know, that's more so like seeing some of the data on stuff that printed at what level. I think you have to track certain structures and certain names. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't, it's going to be hard to make a definitive model on something like that right now. But, you know, for us, just having a good understanding as to, you know, some of the names that we track and where's a lot of the, the, the Vega positioning at, um, it gives us some sort of a framework to say, you know, there's. I was gonna say most prime desks actually something. provide some level of. I mean, Chris can contest this. Uh, you know, for their for their customers, will provide kind of where the biggest gamma points are, the auto call balls, where things were struck, and what the general flow is. So you can get some of that from your from your primes, from your dealers. It's it's a lot of that's publicly not publicly, but generally passed around. Um, yeah, but, water. Sorry, trader water cooler top. I wanted to talk like do you could this be the death of like the passive thesis or where do you guys see that of right of like the whole world's going into target date funds and basically everyone except the people we've talked about is just plowing money into indices uh u.s indices mainly uh but does this become you know hey there's you should be doing more complex stuff more options you know does this start to lower the power of the passive thesis I don't think so. I've talked about this, I think even with you, but um, Mike Green and I have talked about this. The The passive flows are another, just like uh, derivatives are a secular trend because they're a better product, right? Passive flows are a secular trend. It's an easier way for people to access the market and do it quickly. And, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, but the reality is uh, those passive flows are currently tied to to, to growth, right? And that's because of massive liquidity in the system. And, you know, I won't get into all the details, but if, you know, if there's a free money, essentially your companies are, are best, you know, advantage to, to go moon, to go for a moonshot where they can dominate the system without making cash flows. Right. Um, as opposed to getting current cash flows. So growth names are tied to passive, tied to momentum in a world where the market declines, they're going to get taken down with the passive as well. And ultimately the, the value the thing that, that performs in a, in a decline, which would generally be a value name or whatever, will um, will eventually develop the momentum to be added into some of the passive vehicles and will ride uh, a tide higher uh, potentially the next time around. So um, I, I think that the passive structure is, is, a, is a real um, trait of the markets and will only continue to grow. I, I believe in that. It's not the only factor um, and, and, you know, but it will, Ultimately, I think if you get this handoff of what is in that passive pool, right? Yeah. Um, essentially, all passive is is a momentum vehicle. 
I think momentum is here to stay, but that, that momentum can change from one, um, you know, area of the, uh, of the, the value or growth or some factor to another. And I think that's what yes. passive's not going anywhere. I'll be the first to say like that, especially like as a millennial myself, I know straightforward, like passive is not going anywhere. Um, you know, the more some of these millennials become aware to some of the products that are out there, the more enticed they are to say, oh, wow, you know, I want a little bit of Tesla, Facebook, Amazon at the same time. Right. And I could be in, you know, some sort of a, an app that basically takes a percentage of my my salary and dumps it into these on a consistent basis. So passive from a millennial standpoint. Right. You do have some stock pickers that are coming out the woodworks with this Wall Street bet dynamic and, and some of the other stuff. But uh, the accessibility towards investing and the um, the framework to it uh, is so easy right now that passive will just continue to grow. And, you know, a lot of millennials that I know, like naturally, they just want things easy. Right. Like yeah. that's why. All right. Fast food, you know, um, gym, whatever, like everything's easy and fast. Just give me, give me, give me really easy. Right, and fast. Let me click on right. my phone and give it to me. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's the same thing with with the investing thing. Right. Not a lot of people want to take the time and say, oh, I want to look into this company. Let me figure it out. It's just like, oh, yeah, I heard a friend that said Tesla's a good stock. I want to buy it. OK, so by the way, you know, this thing could put you in that that buys Tesla, Amazon, Facebook, the best names. Right. The best names, they call it. Um, so it's just, you know, from a uh, behavioral finance perspective, I cannot see that this passive uh, flow going away anytime soon. And especially because you look at the fact that the buying power of the economy is now shifting into the hands of the millennials, right? So millennials are inheriting uh, money that their boomer parents had set aside for them, right? They are also becoming um, professionals in, in, in their field, right? So you have millennials who are now accredited lawyers, traders, right? People own businesses. So the buying power is in their hands. What'd you say? Dentists. Dances, yes, exactly. So, so, you know, the buying power is in their hands right now. It's, it's slowly transitioning. And the way some of the millennials think is more focused around risk, right? We're thinking in an innovative type of way where we want growth. Like we want to be in things where I want it to grow, right? I want to make six, 700% on something, right? I want to be in something that's innovative and cool, right? So but we, that's almost to my point of like, in theory, you're only going to get five, 6%. On these, right? If you buy passive in the index, so uh, maybe they're I mean, gonna be like, "This isn't enough. I need to go over to the Wall Street bets crowd." Well, which was 1.8 million in that chat, in that whatever you call it, in the Reddit three weeks ago. Now it's at three something, right? What what if that's at 30 million or 300 million, right? Well, like, how big can that that get? Well, look at the art names, right? Yeah. Look yeah. look at how popular the art names have been, right? That's that's like a millennial type of product in in my eyes, at least. Right. That is a way that you can have some sort of passive flows into those type of products and be super speculative. Um, so I completely agree with Jem. And I know Mike has been behind this, this, this theme for a long time, too. And I, I just can't see it going anywhere. All right. We'll see. Yeah, I agree. But I want to see like, OK, there's 30 million people on Wall Street bets. Like, what are you doing, you idiot of making five percent a year over there? You can make, you know, 500 over here. I think the distinction is important that passive does not mean growth, right? These names have gotten so stretched We're at the end of kind of this, you know, at some point the passive flows reach a point where things get so out of whack that it leads to, you know, uh, 
something where things fall apart and there's a period of underperformance of, of those because there's forced liquidations and all of those same vehicles that everybody was long. And then eventually the thing that outperforms that becomes a bigger part of the index then um, you know, will lead higher. I, I think it's important to not lose sight of the, the, the Fed's role, liquidity's role in all of this uh, to emphasizing you know, and, and reinforcing the value of growth. And I think in a, in a fiscal dominated world or something where value becomes more, uh, cash flow becomes more important because money's not free. I think the passive might latch onto a totally different product. Money, money is free, right? <laughs> but let's- Now it's free, right? Like now you don't need cash flow. But not- let's talk about that real quick of just your guys' views on what, what does that look like? Um, right, is that how this ends? Is that where the music ends of the liquidity, Fed provided liquidity dries up? Um, I know, Jim, we've talked like they're out of bullets already, but now we've moved into fiscal, so. Yeah, it's not necessarily that they're out of uh, bullets. They're up against. um, They can manufacture bullets. They're up against people, right? Like politics matters, people matter. Um, If you're in a world where it wasn't about human beings and you were just maximizing for GDP growth, they'd keep doing what they were doing. What they're doing is, has created a, it's, it's accelerated technologies. It's led to a bit of an industrial revolution, right? Corporations are doing better than ever, right? Problem is it's tearing apart at the fabric of society. Um, Inequality is a problem. It's uh, become on everybody's lips, right? Um, It's been a building kind of zeitgeist and it's here front and center. Everybody's talking about it, has been for years now. But it doesn't seem the Fed cares about it. They're not giving any lip service. That's not true. They're actually very clearly coming out and making commentary. um, You know, both both the Fed and the Treasury and lockstep here making very clear commentary about wanting to shift to fiscal, about wanting to help underprivileged groups, about um, you know reducing getting the money to the people who need it. And if you watch Powell's presser today, I mean, seventy-five percent of that was. Right. I, I meant more, is it, is it just lip service or do you think it's real? No, I think I, I really don't think so. I mean, Janet Yellen's first tweet, her next five tweets were all about reducing this gap. She's tied into the administration who has made this their, you know, the new administration, which has made this their, 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 their point. And, and Powell has been very clear about the, the transition to fiscal being, you know, being time for a transition to fiscal. And he's been beating that, you know, for about a year now. Um, and, and, he's, and that's why they're willing to take inflation. They set the inflation expectations higher. Um, you know, I, I think we, you know, they want inflation of two, three plus percent, you know, three, four percent um, is what they're looking for at this point. And they, they want to reduce inequality. I, again, we'll see, right? I mean, nobody believes it now because after about 20 years, everybody's shaking their head saying, you know, recency bias is like, how can that ever happen, right? It's a different and can they do both right like that's the big question can they improve the inequality by not just hammering the you know the one percent down but by bringing everyone else up right that's the idea of right demand side economics as opposed to supply side right and look that's going to hit mean or it's gonna we're no longer gonna be maximizing for gdp we're gonna be maximizing for median income which are very different things but um, wouldn't that come down to the individual stock level in theory of like each. Absolutely. This yeah. is this is everything. I mean, this they're is not going to maximize flows. for capital, right? Yeah. When we talk about flows, you know, Chris and I get talking about like the flow flowing, you know, into what product and passive flows and option flows and whatever. All of that is coming out of one really big pipe, and that that's out of you know government. That's out of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. 
right? In one way or another, that's how it gets to all these places, right? And they're yeah. taking that big pipe and they'll just point over here and they're going, yeah. it's going to yeah. change everything. I mean, that's what we're seeing. I mean, what you're seeing, to back to our original point, what you're seeing with retail is a direct, you know. Oh, that pipe just pipe moving a little bit. Right. Going into a different place is, is driving, is a major driver of what's going on right now. Uh, it's going to change a lot of things. Right, because how, how much of that pipe was there? What was the amount? Two trillion or what was the first stimulus amount? The first one was a 1.1 or 1.2. The second one was 900. And, and um, you know, now we're in talks of 1.1 to 1.7. So, right. I mean, that's people lose sight of how much money that is. Like, you know, the, the New Deal uh, in, in real terms was something like $600 billion dollars. Now, economy was a lot, the economy was much smaller, right? So you have to kind of relative to the size of the economy. The economy was big. It was, it was a lot bigger, but you know, we just had all combined, all three of these will be three, whatever trillion. And, and if you think that's the end of it, like, no way. No way. Well, which we've talked about, to me, this is just gonna get people on the basic income trail of like, maybe they don't call it that, but there's like the annual stimulus or something, right? Of just like, no, what are you doing? Look at this is great for the economy. Everything's going up. You gotta keep giving these people money. Look, yeah, it's look crazy. It to think, you know, ten years ago, eleven years ago, 20, 2010, fiscal conservatism, like the Tea Party, was kind of you know that seems like millennia ago. Now, now it's you know uh, we're 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 in a UBI world where you know there is no real cost to this, and you know right. in the short term as as the you know dominant currency as a reserve. And then you buy some Bitcoin as your hedge in case it all blows up, right? Right. <laughs> That's a topic for another day. Cool. We'll wrap up, Chris. You got any other last thoughts? I think, uh, I mean, we covered a lot today. Um, (laughs) I think we touched on a ton of topics, but I, you know, I think right now this is a rates game. Um, You know, right. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the Fed reacts when, you know, it's time to actually really raise rates. And it's going to be really interesting to see what the sentiment on the street will be like uh, when they actually do. You know, it could it be reflexive where everybody immediately says, oh, my God, they're finally raising rates. I'm buying downside puts. And right. And here comes some of this flow positioning that me and Jem always talk about where people are reaching for puts. And then, you know, that cascades of 10 percent move down to like, you know, 25 or 30 percent move uh, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure. I'm honestly not too sure on one thing that I do know, you know, in my years of, of trading is that when things get one sided, it is always better to take the other side of the trade. Uh, and right now, seeing this uh, dynamic of this huge new participant engaging. Except in GameStop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't fully seen how this soap opera is going to play out, right? So we still have to see the, 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 full, the full scope of it. But, um, you know, I, I, think, I think this whole uh, – dynamic that's going on i think it could continue for a longer time period than people are giving credence to i think you know maybe we could see six months of just this constant price action um but i do know when it goes away it's going to go away hard whether it's people losing a ton of money and you know a market you know tanking on something like this or you know some sort of regulatory intervention that's impacting the actual microstructure I don't think that this is something that's just going to go off into the uh, sunset and just be very quiet. So I think people should be focused on their book. 
think they should be focused on, you know, risk parameters in their book and, you know, their true risk, right? Not their VAR that, that, that you know, that, that says, oh, that's where your risk is at. And then, you know, AMC goes, you know, 100% and you're down, you know, uh, 90%. Won't the dealers start pushing the option prices out if they haven't already? I feel like they just well, have to keep Well, yeah, I mean, look at, look at AMC. AMC yeah, at the money one week out was trading at 1,000 ball. AMC, the one week at the money was trading at a thousand. Like, what do you want to price it to? You know, like, yeah. there's no way to price it. It's, it's impossible to widen it. Enough. But people were still it's buying. It's just not a market anymore. Exactly. People were still buying. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like, right? like, at this point, the vols are irrelevant. It does not matter. Right. What is the, tell me the difference between a thousand vol and an 800 vol, right? Or a thousand vol and a 5,000 vol. It's the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's. What does that look like? That's like a, hundred percent out of the money or something or 200 percent and they're trading for 20 bucks or something or who knows uh, it's specific to each stock but right it's something insane right yeah i yeah i can't tell you what the implied move is off the top of my head but yeah it is it is insane right and they're the traders are looking at it like well whatever i lose 20 bucks who cares um cool jam any other last thoughts um i mean i <laughs> a lot of them but i the what i would what i would say is uh the way the way this probably ends is is in a decline in the market at some point i think you know i think to chris's point i think we could get a lot more of this for a while and it could get very kind of 2000s on steroids right and a lot more that means more game stops more amc game stops more upside broadly to the market more you know the the crazier some of those names go get and more the more they get that way more likely people are to buy the index and try and sell them and it becomes a much bigger game, right? That eventually unravels. Um, I, I, I think you pair this, these goings on with, you know, a, what will eventually be higher rates on the back of it, right? If everything starts appreciating assets, we reopen, you know, stocks are doing well, they have lots more money, you know, no more distressed assets. Right, you, you got to get higher rates, and and so the higher rates are ultimately what kill these things. And um, you know that's how this thing ends. It's uh, not new. It'll be different this time, and, and its veracity to the upside because of the derivatives. It'll probably be uh, just even worse on the downside because of the leverage and the amount of overextension that we're you know we're experiencing. Uh, I will say that you know this long run and all this. Um, you know, financialization that's been accelerated by really, you know, free money for all this time is going to ultimately end with the, the shift to fiscal with, with a monetary policy driven economy. You lead to deflation and you can do an infinite amount of it. As long as I keep giving all my money to the top 0.01%, it doesn't lead to price inflation. You can keep rates low and create new technologies and new, you know, deflationary mechanisms, globalization, you know, but the second this gets to everybody's hands and it's everybody starts buying stuff and you go to a demand side economic, economics, uh, if, you, if you worry about inequality at all, this can't, you can't keep doing monetary policy infinitely. The Fed has to worry about inflation. It's the one thing that puts them in the box. And so that's how the sense ends with higher rates. Which to me is why they'll never raise rates materially. But yeah. if inflation goes to 6%, they have to, 5%, they have to. It's part of their directive. Um, and so dealing with inequality will lead to inflation, which will put the Fed in the box. It's the only thing that ever does. Higher rates will be the end to this. this, this in the penalty box, which box are they getting put into? Uh, 
jail cell, whatever. Jail they can't, cells, they right. can't do it anymore. They're yeah, penalty yeah. box. Only one way out. Right. <laughs> hey, Jeff here. Just wanted to note we uh, had a little bit more discussion after we ended the pod and uh, cleaned that up a little and put it on here as a little extra bonus section. So if you listened all the way to the end, enjoy this bonus. So I think that the firms that are getting liquidated are not big enough to completely tank the market. You know, like they're, they're more so distressed firms. Um, so they do have like position in, you know, like the big names or whatnot, but it's not going to be enough to really drive the market down. There will be a point where other people are going to start swooping in for value. I think like there is more forced liquidation coming though, right? Like I, this is not it. Like this is not, it. especially with AMC. AMC, there was a ton of funds that were short. Um, so I, I think in the interim, you may see it like seems too easy, right? Like you could, everyone could see AMC right there. Like I could have bought it yesterday for what, for that same buck 50 or that was from a week ago. No. So we paid that. Uh, we paid for the sevens. Uh, actually this week, I think, yeah, like Monday. Yeah. That's we for, yeah. We paid for the sevens on Monday. And I, that was feel, a like, I feel like it can't go on too long because you have, these guys are going to be forced to delever quickly. Like it's not something yeah. that it's yeah. not going to be something that's like a rolling thing that happens over weeks no, and no. months. Like people are wise to what's going on. People are getting hurt fast. Like everybody knows, you know, they got to get out. Like they're stuck, you know? Yeah. And um, that's, so I think that we're going to, we're going to feel it like this week. Yeah. And then it's going to be done. Right. Like, I mean, the, the long-term trend of this stuff happening is going to continue, but it's going to continue with much smaller leverage on the opposite side, much less, Funds like people realizing they can't do that because they're. You know, yeah, right. I, I I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. I think you'll see most of the liquidation like completely done this week or uh, next week, like middle of next week. I think you'll see other distressed uh, hedge funds basically look at this and like, okay, you know, let's say we're short this name. We gotta, you know, we gotta start like covering some of the position or something like that. I don't think it's gonna be like four or five weeks of this taking place. Yeah. We're at a, just so you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, now my, my world, uh, we're at a really, really important point here overnight, like where we close mm-hmm. next, by the end of this week, if we don't kind of hold this area here on a closing basis, like this thing's going to roll over. Well, so well, like, well, what is this leads to, you know how this goes, right? Like we have this thing driving it right now. We're at an okay place. Nothing's on fire in, in, in index land. Right. Um, but uh, given that what happened to Vols today, broadly in the indices, like it's no longer short, it's no longer long, sorry, long, long gamma, like these, this market's much more free. And now if we kind of break these technical levels, you're going to, you're going to have an unwind, you know, Vols going to keep going higher. You're going to have risk parity selling. You're going to have, um, you know, trend following selling. You're going to have, you know, vault pair, you know, vol targeting, well, all this stuff is going to push the market lower if we break through this area. So Yes, you seen how bid has been? Sorry to cut you off, Jeff. Like, Vol has been tremendously strong over the last two weeks. Like just like like Vix Vol. Longer data. Longer right. data. I, I mean, I would even say the front data stuff. Like we were short, we were short some cap bigger, and it was just there was no real cotangle in it. There was no real roll yield, right? The roll yield is saying you know, cotangle rate right. is like seven percent, like not going down at all. So yeah, we're looking the vague, at the vague has been strong, but the the um you know the front end is has it's stayed high. Like the, the VRP has been got has gotten higher because the realize is really low. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. but yes, I it, 
this is, uh, yeah, this was kind of foretold a bit by, by the vol curve, but anyway, we're, I still think people aren't, aren't completely shocked here, at least in index land, right? Like I think people have seen this coming. People are generally prepared. We're still at a good point. This is a tough place to buy the market, but my gut says that this kind of resolves and this market actually just drives right back higher. Well, when have we been at VIX 30, 3% off all time highs, right? It's a little little crazy. Yeah. yeah. 3% off of? Basically all time highs and VIX is whatever it went to today, 30 something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, when you say all-time highs, what do you mean? In the you stock mean? market, stock indices at all-time. Oh, at the, the market at all-time highs. I'm sorry, yeah, I thought yeah. you were talking about VIX at all-time highs. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I started breaking to you. Right, a little higher. <laughs> yeah, a little <laughs> tiny bit higher. Yeah. Um, um, no, I got you. Yes. Um, Last time we were at all-time highs was at like 14, and now it's just held in those 20s. Just- and Chris, you and I were talking about this last night, but uh, you know, I actually think I'm much more bullish on this market in terms of like flows and what this market can do to the upside. Like it can really, really shock people. Like this could be just the re- refresh it kind of needs to now yeah. you know, take, take a drive to 4,100 4, or so, you know? Um, yeah. Really get some people squeezed. Yeah, next two days are important just because we're at this, this real big pivot point, which can really drive a lot of selling and other strategies. You know, this is Jan Feb is a time where you should get a Seasley structurally kind of a period to take a breather, to take a breather, to correct or whatever. So this is all makes sense right now. None of this is unhealthy as much as it may be scary to a lot of people and people like, this is crazy. The market's going to crash. Like it's actually kind of healthy. Yeah. You needed that rotate. We, I I completely agree. We need that rotation, get a few weak hands out, right. Consolidate, collect, and then, you know, make that push to that 4,000 mark. Uh, I mean, right. And, And like, in the bigger picture, right? Take a look at what the market's done in the last three months. We're still, still up there, right? It's trading at three seventy. Like we're still very, very safe. But the strength in VIX is what has me just like a little like, huh? Like people yeah. really have been bid on VIX, and it's that's right, man. That's the right trade because for a couple of reasons, flow wise, you got nobody willing to sell it anymore. Just very few sellers. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, on the buy side, you got a 25% of the public just buying calls at nonstop. You know, you can go sell on those that ball if you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got valuations and you know, at some point this doesn't end well because of, you know, the, the whole narrative is there like at all. Um, and, and it's honestly, it's, it, if you play it right, like you can make money on the long ball side at this point. It's not, you know, if you, if you, if there's no bond alternative, if you don't have a way to hedge your portfolio and you you want to put some vol in there, which there is a secular move towards that, given where rates are, um, there are ways to do it and not lose your shirt. Right. Um, and so I think that's here to stay. I think you look at the late nineties, like Chris and I talked about this last night, I think briefly, like, you know, there's, this thing's going to move either big to the upside or big to the downside before it's all over. You know, that's yeah, uh, yeah. usually, like, right, like it was clear then there were it's going to go one way or the other. Right, I mean the vols were pretty high before that crisis happened. Almost every time the vols go higher before you get a um, an actual secular decline. But you know you got to watch it. Like it could be a two hundred percent. You know, what was it three twenty five? We said I was looking at three hundred twenty five percent from October of ninety eight to March of nine uh, March of two thousand. That's how much the Nasdaq rallied. Three twenty five. 
whole index. Obviously, it's a different index, but you know that was a year and a half period at the when, when people were already like ninety six people or ninety eight people were like this market's crazy. There was they were having the same conversations we're having now in in, in late ninety eight and and it went another three hundred and twenty five percent and crushed everybody. Right? All right, guys, awesome. This has been fun. Um, we'll put where to uh, get a hold of you, although everyone knows already in their uh, show notes. And then uh, be sure to check out. We've done a previous pod with Jem on Agia. We've got one coming up with Chris to dig in what he's doing at Ambrose Group. But he's so good on these little one-offs that we keep having him on before we get to his full stuff. But uh, I appreciate it. Um, I think we're sending some snow your way, Chris. We just got dumped on here in Chicago. So good luck. Oh, with man. That. I didn't even know that, really. You're yeah. Right. What, yeah. We have like four or five inches, maybe. Four or five inches. I got my son out shoveling for me for the first time. Oh, that's nothing for you guys. You guys are used to like five feet of snow. <laughs> no, we don't get that. I was just telling someone that the other day, Jim. I'm like, I'm old enough now where I can send my son out to shovel. It's great. It makes me sad, but it's also great. I'm feeling the inflation at home. I had to pay him 15 bucks. <laughs> oh, my, I don't tell mine that. I just told him that's his job. He's got to get out there and do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.